been three years since I last stood before you to preach. Three years since I prepared to deliver Jonah 4 specifically. In the providence of God, I was not to preach then. Uh, But by His grace and mercy, I am here today to bring God's Word to you. It's a bit of a long break between the first three chapters and today. So before we consider Jonah 4, I want to spend the first part of our time together in a quick overview of chapters 1 through 3 to reorient ourselves in the story. It's going to feel like pretty much an overview of the whole book. But I think that will help us. I'm going to be going fast and skimming over the text to get to chapter 4. And so I encourage you to turn to Jonah if you're using uh, that black Bible. It's page 774 or 744, I think. 774. Thank you. So before we dig into the text, let's look at a few things like the setting. We know from 2 Kings 14.25 that Jonah was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of Jeroboam II. This is in the 8th century B.C. We know the main characters, namely God. While most every book of prophecy in the Bible is dominated with God's prophetic pronouncements, Jonah centers on God's interaction with Jonah. Jonah the rebellious, the angry and flawed prophet of God. And that's Jonah. The intrepid soul who endeavored to disobey God and run the opposite direction, and it did not work out so well for him. Or it did. We also have the mariners, the unwitting participants on the boat, who are carrying Jonah in his rebellion unknowingly and end up delivering him as fish food. We have what most people think of when we think of the book of Jonah, and that's the fish. The fish turns into an instrument of God as a prophet delivery system. And then, of course, we have Nineveh, a major city in the Assyrian Empire. It would one day be the capital, one of the largest cities in antiquity. The Assyrians were a wicked, wicked nation. They oppressed the northern kingdom of Israel. They killed its people. They plundered its wealth. Israel hated Assyria. They were known for harassment and cruelty, inflicting suffering and their idolatry and chasing after false gods. Now that we have the setting and the main characters out of the way, I want to dig into Jonah 1. Read with me in Jonah 1, 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Okay, this makes sense. It's a book of prophecy, and Jonah begins with God calling Jonah to prophesy judgment over Nineveh. It was an important city, as we said. It's near what is now Mosul in modern Iraq. This bitter enemy to Israel were known for doing many cruel things, including 
the ripping open of pregnant women. And that's not metaphor. Incredibly evil, engaged in psychological warfare, what we would call terrorism. And in light of this, you might think that Jonah would be more than willing to go and tell them, my God declares judgment on you. You vile and evil people. You are going to get what you deserve. But that's not what happens. Jonah immediately takes an interesting turn in verse 3 where it says, but Jonah rose to flee Tarshish, flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down to it, to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. I think the writer makes it clear that Jonah is very much disobeying and going the opposite direction and fleeing the very presence of the Lord as though he could do that. So to orient us, Nineveh is about 600 miles east of where Jonah is. Jonah decides to flee to Tarshish, which is near Gibraltar, which is 2,500 miles west. He's going about as far as he could possibly think to go. And some commentators think that in Jonah choosing to go as far as he could go in the opposite direction, having to take a slow-going ship, it was not fast. He thought maybe that he could thwart the sovereignty of God. As if being on a ship would stop God from using him to prophesy judgment to Nineveh. And here we have the central conflict of the book between Jonah and God. God's command to prophesy judgment to Nineveh and Jonah's disobedience to that command and trying to run as far as he could. So Jonah boards the ship and in so doing brings the mariners into his conflict with God. And God, in verse 4, it says, hurls a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. This was not your average storm on the Mediterranean. God was making it clear that Jonah would not be allowed to run from his presence. As if he could. The storm that he called forth was strong enough to break the ship apart. So these mariners are freaking out. The verse 4 says, that each cried out to his God, and then they tossed the cargo. They're trying to make the ship as light as possible to ride as high in the water as possible, probably because the waves are terrible. The wind is terrible. The ship might break apart. That's helpless panic. There's nothing you can do. You know just how insignificant you are in the middle of the ocean with its fury around you. And so what do they do? They do the only thing that they can think to do, and they cast lots to determine whose fault this is. So they're literally rolling dice to figure out, based on where it lands, who to blame. God and his sovereignty, it lands on Jonah. So they proceed to interrogate him to figure out who he is and where he's from. And Jonah Jonah responds with an almost creedal statement, I am a Hebrew... And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. 
And then it says, the men were exceedingly afraid and said to them, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So Jonah came clean. And they're even more terrified. Terrible storm is one thing, but now they find out it's Jonah's fault because by his own admission, he's running from God who, by his confession, is the creator of all things. So they ask him, what should we do? And he says, throw me in. So they do. They toss Jonah into the ocean, and immediately the sea ceased from its raging. But for Jonah, sinking into the depths of the ocean... His ordeal was not over. And I can imagine as he's tossed into the water and the waves cease and the wind ceases that he sees that as he descends into the depths thinking, I'm going to drown and die here. And it makes you wonder, was his hate of Nineveh so great that he preferred to drown rather than declare judgment to them? Was his hate of Nineveh so great that he preferred to drown rather than declare judgment to them? And why would he not want to declare judgment? And we can only suppose at this point that by warning them of judgment, they would be given the opportunity to repent. Yet Jonah running from God and Jonah being thrown in the ocean to die in no way hinders God's will. He will accomplish all that he desires. As Jonah slips into the deep, we come to a verse of Scripture that many find incredible or fanciful or a lot of people just call straight fiction. And that's verse 17. It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, as I said before, I'd guess when Jonah was is mentioned that this is what most of us think about swallowed by a fish. Whether it's a whale or a shark, it doesn't really matter which prophet delivery system God uses to bring his prophet, so much as the incredible declaration that he was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. I want to take just a minute here. Whether you're a Christian who struggles with this, or those curious about Christianity and on the fence, or just don't believe it at all. The idea that God can use a fish to swallow a human and spit him back up three days later is incredible. Naturally, as in the natural world, this wouldn't happen. The person would be digested, suffocated, maybe chewed to bits. Mostly just dead. It strains our mind to consider such a thing. And the tendency is to write it off as false, as made up, as a fairy tale. But that's only if we consider that the world is purely a mechanistic chain of causation from one natural event to the next. 
God has designed and created an orderly world. There are systems and processes and a natural order of things. We have laws of physics based on those observations of how God has designed this world to operate. However, God is not bound by the natural world, by his own creation. He is its creator. His power is over all that he has created. He is not inside the creation such that he's governed by it. If he were, he would not be God, but just a part of the created order like you and like me. He is not ruled by his creation. He rules his creation. He is outside of it. He can do with it whatever he wills. It's a small thing for God to have a fish swallow a guy and spit him up three days later. We just got through reading how he was controlling the weather of the Mediterranean Sea and it and the sea itself and we're going to balk that he uses a fish to swallow somebody and spit him up. The idea of the fish is nothing in comparison to creating all that you see in bringing the dead back to life in controlling the weather, his sovereignty over all events, his direct intervention to save a people for himself. So friends, don't let the fish dissuade you from the truth of God and his word. God used a fish to move a man from ocean to shore. It happened just as scripture said. Jesus refers to Jonah as a historical person. So consider God for all that he is for who he is. Of course he can do miraculous things. Things that we don't understand and cannot explain. He is God. Now returning back to the narrative, we come from the whirlwind of action and events in chapter 1 to Jonah alone with his God in chapter 2. We have the command of God the running prophet, the raging storm on the sea, the conflict with the mariners, and then him being thrown into the ocean and swallowed by a fish. And chapter 2 kind of slows it down to a com- almost a comparative quiet. Setting goes from the wide worlds to the confines of a fish's stomach. And the text should cause us to slow down and, con- and reflect with Jonah as he calls out to God in chapter 2 in a prayer. Now, before we read that prayer, I want you to notice that the prayer is bookended by God's actions in control of the fish. So in chapter 1, verse 17, it says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow him up, to swallow up Jonah. And in the end of his prayer in chapter 2, verse 10, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And what happened in between those bookends, I think, is that Jonah is taught a lesson. And the lessons that God will be obeyed. So as Jonah is in the belly of this fish, chapter 2 starts out, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, 
and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's a beautiful departure from the action and tension and conflict of chapter 1 to a prayerful response by Jonah for, for, to God for delivering him from death. And Jonah concludes his prayer with the declaration, salvation belongs to the Lord. Our boy came around. He learned his lesson. Or did he? So the text moves from this declaration to God directing the fish to literally vomit him out upon the dry land. And then Jonah 3 begins like a reset. It's like a do-over of sorts from chapter 1. Chapter 3 begins, starting in verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. little emphasis there. Saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And unlike chapter 1, when he went the opposite direction, it says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So our now obedient prophet, realizing that he cannot run from the presence and power of the Lord, makes the journey to that hated nation, that nation of Assyria, and that great city, Nineveh. And he declares God's word of judgment to them, as a prophet must do. A prophet must say exactly what God directs the prophet to say. And so it says in verse 4, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. No call to repentance. No offer of salvation. Just judgment. I have to wonder if the people who happened to hear this thought, What do you say? Did you, did you hear that? Jonah ought to be pleased, right? He can declare judgment on that evil nation that harasses and kills his countrymen. Why would he run from this? And what's Nineveh's response? Did they hear him? Will they ridicule him? Are they going to torture this guy? Are they going to kill him? Read with me in verse 5. It's a remarkable thing that happens. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Jonah literally prophesies 
Five words in the Hebrew, the commentators say. And verse 5 says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. This verse is kind of the bottom line up front for what comes after in verses 6 through 9 where it details that the king puts on sackcloth. He sits in ashes. And he calls for the whole city to follow his lead in this outward show of repentance. And he calls for an inward change. He says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And an amazing thing happens. This evil city in an evil nation, this thorn in Israel's side that Jonah hates so much he didn't even want to come and warn them. They turn from their evil. And verse 10 says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. One of the greatest cities of antiquity, full of godless pagans, repented. Now, in light of the cross of Christ, we look back on this with praise and give glory to God. But Jonah? We'll see in a moment in chapter 4 that Jonah is less than okay with this turn of events. And we'll find out why he ran from God's command to pronounce judgment over Nineveh. And in the back and forth that follows between Jonah and God, I want us to notice the three questions that God asks Jonah to teach him and us something about himself. Namely, that God is merciful. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve, what we didn't earn. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve, which is divine justice. God is merciful that we, merciful in a way that we in our, in our humanness cannot comprehend. God uses the drama of a disobedient prophet proclaiming judgment to a wicked and evil nation to teach Jonah, Israel, and us about his mercy towards sinners. And through this, I hope that we see, as we said several times this morning, that God's mercy eclipses, overshadows, outshines our minds, our concepts of mercy. And so we'll see a pattern of Jonah being angry, and God questioning him three times. And with his final question to Jonah, he instructs him and us what it means that he is merciful. So Jonah 4 begins. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. 
Jonah is mad. He is big mad. He accuses God of acting according to God's divine attributes and his will. He basically says, isn't this what I said? This is why I ran. I knew you were gracious and merciful. What a strange thing to say to God. (laughs) And his disobedience and foolish attempt to run was because he was worried that his proclamation of judgment over Nineveh would give them the chance to repent. He didn't want them to have a warning. He didn't want them to have a chance. He hated them so much that he wanted them to perish in divine judgment. Maybe like Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet his running was futile and God, like picking up a puppy by the scruff of the neck and putting it down where it ought to be, had Jonah throw off his escape boat swallowed by a fish and spit up on land. So Jonah obeyed and went to Nineveh, preaching judgment, and his worst fear was realized. Nineveh repents. And now he's so angry, he's praying to God and saying, Kill me. And God, in his mercy, asks him a question. Do you do well to be angry? You know when you're really angry and you're venting to someone about whatever it is and you're going on and on about the problem or the situation and then suddenly that person who's been listening to you vent and vomit at the mouth, (laughs) so many words, they've been quietly listening to you and then they ask you that question that makes you stop cold and gives you perspective and makes you feel silly. That's what should have happened to Jonah right here. Not only is God still speaking to him, in the face of his anger, directed at God, but he asked him a diagnostic heart question. Are you right to be angry? Jonah ought to have stopped cold, recognizing that God himself is questioning his behavior, and he should have reevaluated. But no, he doubles down. The text then says in verse 5 that Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city, and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So he exits the city. He makes a shelter for himself to see what God would do to this city. He puts up his Old Testament lawn chair and with a bit of shelter to sit out in the hot desert and see how God would deal with Nineveh. Perhaps he's still hoping for some form of judgment. Maybe an appearance by God himself to terrify them. That'll show him. Maybe, maybe, God's still going to fireball that city. Whatever the case, he's there and he's waiting to see what God will do. And God does a curious thing. So Jonah has built this shelter out of the available wood, probably, that he could find. And God causes a plant to miraculously grow over this thing and shade him, save him from his discomfort, the text says. And Jonah's really happy for that plant. 
which has delivered him from his discomfort. He's excited to have this extra shade while he sits in his lawn chair waiting to see what will happen to Nineveh. And he's waiting a while uh, because he goes to sleep and the next day it continues. But when the dawn came up the next day, this is verse 7, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. God continues to be merciful and to teach Jonah. He gives him a plant, which seems odd. And he uses it to deliver Jonah from the heat give him shade, provide him comfort, and then he uses a worm to kill it. And then he sends hot desert winds to blast Jonah. These are not conditions that you ought to be out in the desert in. In the Middle East, they're known as Sirocco winds, or Sirocco. Here in the United States, our Southern California friends will know them as the Santa Ana winds. They're very strong winds coming out of the desert, rare usually happening in the autumn in Southern California, but can reach hurricane force. They bring heat and dryness. So here Jonah is sitting in his, still sitting in his shelter with his dead plant, waiting to see what would happen to Nineveh. And God takes away his shelter, blasts him with heat and wind and sand, such that the text says that Jonah is faint. And again, he says he wants to die. And God says, asks him a second question. He goes a little further. Do you, do you do well to be angry for the plant? So Jonah, for the second time, is questioned by God about his anger. This time, instead of Nineveh, it's about a plant. Jonah didn't get the lesson yet and responds to God in anger and says in verse 9, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. He's having a full-on hissy fit. And when I read that, it seems to be that Jonah is is snapping back to God, almost the way that I read it. I just, I can't see how he could respond in any other way, the way that, for what he said. His mood was way beyond reason, if he's that angry for a plan. He's angry that Nineveh had received mercy. Maybe he's angry that he was the tool used by God to accomplish it. That rage had so enveloped him that he was angry the plant that provided him shade had died. Now God, full of patience and mercy, makes his point clear with a detailed question and a rebuke. And he brings Jonah to a close with his final question. He says, starting in verse 10, The Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? And that's how the book of Jonah ends, with that question hanging over Jonah. John asks, God says to Jonah, you pity the plant. You didn't care for it. You didn't water it. You didn't tend it. 
You didn't do anything to deserve it. You didn't make it grow. It grew in a single night. And it's likewise gone in a night. You're angry for that which you did not build. Shouldn't I pity Nineveh? A great city full of people who don't know what? Their left from their right? It's, it's helpful here, and I was helped by Brian Estelle, who says, since the idiom means to distinguish, that is, knowing their right hand from their left, in Jonah, it seems to be indicating that Nineveh has many people who are entrapped in their sinful lifestyles and don't know how to get out. These pagan people are helpless in their inability to make serious ethical discriminations. Surely they are not morally innocent. That's indicated by their own confession in chapter 3, not to mention the many other places in Scripture that allude to them as wicked and guilty. But they are helpless in the sense that they are trapped in their sins and undiscerning about how to escape them. And so God is teaching Jonah and Israel and all of us what it means that he is exactly who Jonah confessed he is in his complaint when Jonah said, he is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Estelle continues, God highlights the superficiality of Jonah's ties to this plant. This is only a single plant and a lifeless one at that. Jonah has no claim to the plant whatsoever. Jonah has no claims before the bar of justice. All his appeals about God's dealings with the plant and with the Ninevites are out of court. Jonah had set himself up as judge. He blurred the distinction between creature and the creator. He arrogated, which is he took or claimed without justification, to himself the position of arbitrator of life and death from the humble stance of a sinful human creature. He had not acted in accordance with his station in life. He did not really know before whom he stood. A savage lethargy had clouded his mind. A caustic sclerosis or hardening had covered his heart. Jonah was looking on the situation with unseeing eyes. What a piercing look at the hardening of heart that had come upon Jonah. A hardness that led Jonah to run from God and to disobey him and to argue with him and to be angry that God had relented from the disaster God told Jonah to declare to Nineveh. Even angry that a plant died. He lost sight of who he was and what he was to do. He is the prophet, not the God who speaks through the prophet. He is the creature, not the creator who decrees judgment and grants mercy to his creation. He is the one who deserves judgment and has been given mercy, not the just and holy judge of all the earth. God's mercy over Nineveh is not a cause for Jonah to be angry at, but should instead cause him and us to worship in awe and wonder at how merciful God is. Jonah separated himself as different from the Assyrians. 
perhaps even assuming that he deserved the special relationship with God he enjoyed as one of God's covenant people. God rebukes Jonah and reminds him that he is creator and judge. And that he can take pity over whoever he wills. And that Jonah and Nineveh are not so different. They are both sinful and in need of God's mercy and grace. I want to conclude our time with just a couple of observations from the text. Jesus refers to Jonah as an actual historical figure. And in light of the cross, we need to see Jonah as a shadow of the things to come. Jonah was three days in the belly of a fish. Jesus Christ was three days in the grave. God was teaching Jonah obedience. God in Christ is teaching the world of his own perfect obedience. Jonah is delivered from the fish. Jesus is delivered from death. The offer, if you will, the preaching in Jonah is given to Nineveh, a Gentile city. And in Jesus Christ, salvation is freely offered to all Gentiles. Praise God, we all happen to be Gentiles, I believe. As we close this book, remember that it points to Jesus who was to come. We are like Jonah, not in the ways that he foreshadows Christ, but in our frailties, our disobedience, our anger, our self-centeredness, but rejoice and take heart. Our Father is gracious. He is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He saves all who come to him in repentance and faith in Jesus' finished work. And the second thing that I want us to see is that God decides who he will give mercy to. Jonah was angry that God was merciful to Nineveh. He lost sight of the fact that God was merciful to him. He disobeyed God and ran. Yet God was merciful to bring him back via the storm and the fish. He was angry that Nineveh repented, yet God was merciful to him and used him as a prophet. He was merciful not to strike him dead. God was merciful to patiently teach him through the lesson of a plant that God's mercy is God's alone and not Jonah's or anyone else's to withhold. Jonah didn't and we don't get to decide who God will be merciful to. Put it this way, God has not called his church to be his wrath and judgment on the world. We warn sinners of the judgment to come, yes. And we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. If God uses our proclamation of the good news of the gospel to condemn some and thereby execute his wrath, so be it. But it is not by our conscious will or desire. 
We declare judgment for sin, but we don't orchestrate it. We must not seek God's judgment on sinners by withholding the gospel. We warn sinners. We invite them to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. More than invite them, we call them to repent and believe. Heaven will not be filled with just the people we want to see there and not the people we don't. We can't dodge our way through life, giving the gospel to some and withholding it from others. If you're withholding the gospel from someone because you hate them and you want them to die and experience eternal judgment, friend, examine your heart before God. I strongly warn you that you may be in danger of not understanding the gospel at all and urge you to consider God's question to Jonah. Do you do well to be angry? When thinking of mercy, hear this from John Calvin. The only haven of safety is in the mercy of God, as manifested in Christ, in whom every part of our salvation is complete. As all mankind are, in the sight of God, lost sinners, we hold that Christ is our only righteousness since by his obedience he has wiped off our transgressions. By his sacrifice appeased the divine anger. By his blood washed away our stains. By his cross borne our curse, and by his death made satisfaction for us. We maintain that in this way man is reconciled in Christ to God the Father by no merit of his own, by no value of works, but by gratuitous mercy. Your standing before God and my standing before God is determined by the gratuitous mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Do you believe and trust that he has shown you mercy? by withholding divine judgment from you and instead placing it on Christ? And likewise, that he gives you grace by giving you the very thing that you do not deserve by clothing you in the righteousness of Christ by faith in his finished work? Repent of any unmerciful feelings you have and pray for repentance and faith in yourself and in those you hate. And when you repent and believe in Christ, you experience God's mercy and grace. Rejoice in that and seek it for everyone. Hear this encouragement from God's word in Titus 3. Hear it about yourself. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. 
so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we rejoice at your mercy expressed toward us in Jesus Christ. We do not deserve it. You withhold judgment from us and give us the righteousness of your Son. And it is a thing too awesome to comprehend sometimes. Father, I pray that you would impress your word upon us, use it to transform us, to grow us into the image of your Son, and make us merciful, for you are merciful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.